Tonight I just want to draw a few ideas to mind before we head into taking the Lord's table together. Time for us to remember the significance of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look around and there's a lot of discussion about love today. But in this discussion of love, love is greatly misunderstood. In the name of love, people violate the law of God. In the name of love, some will even abandon their family. Even there have been murders done in the name of love. I read an article this week of a young lady who went home to visit her family, and while she was there, her ex-boyfriend arrived, took her out of the house and put her into his car and started driving around. As he was driving around, he was saying to her that he loved her and couldn't stand the idea that she would be with anyone else. She, of course, becoming more and more fearful for her own life, encouraged him to stop at a convenience store where they can pick up a drink. As they entered, she gave a sign to the cashier. You might have seen this moving around in TikTok or other places. A hand signal that you can give to indicate that you are under distress, that you're being held captive against your will. Cashier had noticed it, immediately called the police, and a few short moments later, she was protected from her captor. But it was rather interesting that all under the name of love, and I love you, I must have you, he was even threatening her life. The idea of love has been forgotten. There's a lot of talk about love, but there is little understanding of the biblical description of love. I found a website where people were talking about what love means to them. One guy said, love is security. For me, love is the most secure feeling. Love is having a companion, a best friend, a partner, a sounding board, a cheerleader, an advisor, a cuddle buddy, even though every, or through every avenue of life. Love is having somebody who gives me security. For another, love is indescribable. Love is a sentiment. It's not able to be characterized by any words. Love leaves you speechless to this individual. Or to another, love is respect. To me, a healthy relationship is built on respect for one another. Each person understands the commitment they make to the other person. This is love. The Bible speaks a lot about love. God has said a lot. In fact, if you were to go through the New Testament, you would see the English word love in many places, but behind those English words are many different Greek words. There is a kind of love between two people, a friendship that uh, the Bible describes, a kind of love that describes desire, For example, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 5, it says there that Jesus says of the Pharisees, the hypocrites, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues. There, love is described as a desire. They desire to stand, they desire to pray. In John chapter 11 and verse 3 and in Romans 12.10, love is described as a familial relationship, a brotherly relationship between a brother and a sister. In fact, when Lazarus had died, 
the sisters of Lazarus came to Jesus and said to Jesus, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And that is the word Philadelphia. There is a brotherly love. There's also the corrupting love of money. First Timothy 6.10 describes it, that a, we are not to have a love of money. There's a corrupting love. There is a sensual kind of love, eros. But by and far, the New Testament described love by the term agape in the noun and agapao in the verb. It's the kind of selfless, sacrificial love. So what the Bible describes as love is a kind of love that is selfless and sacrificial. It gives up of itself to care for others. And I was thinking about that term and that idea, and I recognized that Easter is the holiday of love. I was asking my kids on the way in, what holiday would you categorize as the holiday of love? Even though I had in my mind the answer, I was not giving them the indication. Of course, you have Christmas that comes up. We talk about the giving of gifts on Christmas. You have Valentine's Day that often comes to mind, but it is Easter that is the greatest demonstration of love. John chapter 15, verse 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. The greatest demonstration of love is what we remember on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We we remember the time in which Christ came into this world and laid his life down. That he sacrificed everything. Sacrificed his whole life, his whole security. He sacrificed everything for us. Gave up again of his meaning, his, his pursuits, his joys of life. He gave up all, willingly yielded that we would be found in Christ. There is no greater price that one could pay to, than to lay down their life. As I thought about that expression, that love of Christ demonstrated in his life, It's easy to pick a moment and to think, well, that moment is the moment in which love was really expressed. Which moment would it have been? Would it have been at the cross? Would it have been at the incarnation? Would it have been in eternity past? What moment was it that God decided that that was the expression of love? Think about it like this. You might be able to pinpoint a time where you could say, this is when I fell in love with my spouse. Or I learned I loved my kids. This is the moment. This was the event. This is where we were at. This is what was said. This is what we were doing. When we talk about love, we tend to talk in that way, that there was a particular moment when that love was expressed, whereby it was identified that I truly loved them. When we think about love, we think about and use terms like, well, we fell in love. Love just took over. Love just carried us along. Love is easy. Love is instantaneous. It's no effort to it. We tend to think in categories like this, that love should be easy and quick and it should carry us along and there shouldn't be any effort at all and it should just happen. 
And if it somehow didn't happen that way, if it was harder, if it required some kind of work, if it grew cold, if it had to be repeated, well, then it must not really be love. That's the way we're being conditioned to think. One of the greatest lies, and certainly the Easter message reveals this to us, that one of the greatest lies is that love should be easy and you would know it instantly. As many of you know, again, this is not how God measures love. This is not the kind of agape love that God has demonstrated. We are called to love the difficult people. We are called to love those who are blinded by their own sinful passions. We are called to love those who are unlovely at times. Even we ourselves are unlovely. On our worst days, we can look like the devil. In our worst moments, we are acting like enemies of God. And in those moments, it's not easy to love. It's not easy to care for someone. The feelings aren't there, and the effort to strive is demanding. And so there is a sense that we have to understand what a kind of genuine, godly love looks like. And I want to build a case that tonight, that Easter should be that holiday in which we remember the great expression of love. A kind of love that demonstrates that it's not cheap, it's not easy, it's more than feelings and affections, it's more than sympathy and appreciation. It is a purposeful choice to bless one who is undeserving and to bless them with what is best for them at one's own personal sacrifice or one's own personal expense. That is the example we see in Jesus Christ that he cares for and ministers to those who are undeserving, and he does it consistently, sacrificially, over the long haul to demonstrate the overwhelming love of God. That is the Christian message, and it is what Christ demonstrated. I'm going to demonstrate this from two passages. The first is starting in Matthew chapter 16. So I invite you to turn to Matthew 16. And then, of course, in Romans, two passages we've been to before. But passages that will help us understand the depths of this expression. Christ, when he loved us, he loved us sacrificially. And by the time he got to the cross, it wasn't an accident. He didn't have a bad day that led him to an event where he had to lay down his life. He wasn't having a bad week, and in that bad week made a series of life-altering decisions that directed him to the cross. Now this was a purposeful event. This was an event that long anticipated. It was an event he regularly talked about and led up to that point. This was a direction that he was heading He knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. And he was in control every step of the way. It was an act of love that was purposeful and regular over time. Matthew 16 begins to demonstrate this for us. 
We remember well verses 13 through 20 when Jesus is beginning to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say to him, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And and, uh, Jesus blesses Peter for saying that, recognizing that didn't come from you. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter, but my father's in heaven. And then it's verses 21 through 23 that I want to draw your attention to. In light of this grand revelation of who Jesus Christ is, he is the son of the living God. He is, again, the Messiah they have been waiting for. He is the promised one, and they are walking with God. Jesus does next the kind of what would be unthinkable. He tells them to remain quiet. Notice that from verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, or starting verse 20, then he warned his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Then verse 21, that from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. This grand event of the revealing of Christ as the Son of God, he tells them, say nothing, and this is what's going to happen. I'm going to head to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be sacrificed. Jesus revealed to his disciples at this very moment the significance of his life, that he was there for the very purpose of heading to the cross, that he was going to go and he was going to have his life taken away. But he gave that warning in verse 20 that's, again, strange. Say nothing? Say nothing? And he repeats this warning. It's not the first time he gives that warning in verse 20. He says it again in other places. Just keep your finger here in Matthew 16, but turn over to Matthew 26. It happens again. Or at least in Matthew 26, he This is the reason why he is telling them to be quiet. Matthew 26, verse 63 and verse 64. Verse 63, this is Jesus as he's arrested. He's standing before Caiaphas in the courts of Caiaphas' house. He's being judged by the high priest. And they're saying to him, uh, the high priest is asking him questions And the high priest says to him, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Matthew 16, he has already been professed by Peter. Here, verse 64, Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, at that response, the Pharisees and Caiaphas at this point should have responded with, I have God, the Son of God, before me. 
Instead, verse 65 says that the high priest tore his robes and said he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. Christ, for revealing who he is, the Son of God, Christ, for proclaiming who he is, is now declared as a blasphemer by the high priest, rejected. And turn back to Matthew 16. I think this is the very reason why Jesus said to his disciples in verse 20, say nothing. Say nothing because the hardness of heart of the religious leaders are going to reject you. They're going to reject this message and If you said anything, then you're going to be caught up in this as well as being a blasphemer. I think this is why Jesus told them to be quiet, to say nothing. He is protecting them. He is guarding them from the dangers to come. He is protecting them from what they're about to face. He is also in this protection, giving them explanation, verse 21 through 23, about what is going to happen down the road, what what they're going to face. And in this protection, starting in verse 21, it says there that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples. He began to explain to them what was going to take place. He began to educate them and and let them know what was going to happen. Mark says it in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them. Verse 32, he was stating the matter plainly. Jesus was articulating to his disciples the exact events that were going to be played out down the road. Now the question is this. When was this? By indication... You start looking at the events of the transfiguration and other events that took place and the entrance of Christ into the, uh, his final week when he entered into Jerusalem on his last Passover, that this is likely about a year before his death. Up to a year, at least six months, but upwards of a year, he is warning them. He is starting to let them know of what is going to take place. And he is telling them, as verse 21 says, that he is going to die. He is going to suffer, middle of verse 21, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Now, that very news to these disciples would be unthinkable. You mean this perfect teacher, this perfect law, Giver, this model of godly behavior, this man who calls the storms to obey him and they obey, the man whom, whom demons cower before him, the man who is able to raise the dead to cast out disease and illness, the one who is able to do all of these things by the word the power of his voice, the one who baffles his opponents with his wisdom, the one who speaks to the distressed and encourages, this one, this Jesus is going to die? I can understand Peter's comment in verse 22. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Can't happen like that. 
No. You need to be the hero. You need to be the one who conquers. You, you need to be the, the one who takes over, the one who drives out evil. You need to be the one who demonstrates authority. You need to be the one who restores Israel, restores all of this, not the one who dies. As J.C. Ryle says of Peter, he thought so much of the Messiah's crown that he lost sight of his cross. That is the idea in this. But I'm struck by how far in advance Jesus made this known to his disciples. At a very early point, in fact, in Matthew's unfolding of the gospel event, if you were to study through Matthew, chapter 12 is the turning point at the end of chapter 12, beginning chapter 13. The first 12 chapters are the presentation of the Messiah and the glorious demonstration of his authority and his power. By chapter 12, they start rejecting him. And once they reject him, he starts to speak to them in parables and conflict arises. From chapter 12 or 13 and following then, Jesus is in constant conflict with the religious leaders. But along the way, he is telling his disciples this Conflict, though it is persisting, has a purpose. Yeah, they're going to kill me. They're going to do the unthinkable. And it's going to be at the hand of the religious leaders, but this isn't something that is uncommon, out of the ordinary. This isn't something that is uh, unheard of. This is something that has been according to the plan of God. I'm going to go, I'm going to lay down my life, and I'm going to do it as a grand demonstration of my love. Notice what he says in verse 21. Tells them a few, four statements that he makes plain to them. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and chief priests. They will kill him, and he will on the third day be raised up. Four particular details. He tells them where his death is going to happen. He tells them how it's going to happen or who's going to do it. It's going to be the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. It's going to tell them what's going to happen to them. They're going to die. And then he tells them the effect. He's going to be raised on the third day. Every detail laid out well in advance. To go to Jerusalem again, this was a Passover event. He was going to head right into the main place of worship, head to Jerusalem to take his final Passover, and there was going to be the place in which he was going to be taken captive, arrested. So again, as I said, this has been where Matthew is leading in the, his gospel. Matthew chapter 12, you have the confrontation of Jesus in the synagogue. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus starts speaking to the religious people, the religious leaders of the time in parables. Chapter 15, the religious leaders reject him. Chapter 16, they come and test him. They are, going, they are rejecting him cons- persistently and regularly. 
So he's going to go right into where they're at. And then it says, suffer many things. He's going to suffer greatly when he heads. And the people you would expect the least are going to be the ones who are leading the way. I mean, to put it kind of in the terms, our terms, it would be shocking. It would be like saying, the pastors and the elders are going to grab him and flog him and mistreat him. Say, okay, maybe some deacons, I'd expect it, but not the elders. Sorry. (laughs) To all Baptists who are offended, I'm sorry by that. Maybe some other groups, but I don't expect the religious leaders to be the ones doing that. But it is, the, as the text indicates, the elders. This refers to the Sanhedrin, the religious group of leaders who are making the decisions that led the worship and the practices in Israel. These were the, the Sanhedrin, the, the political leaders. Then you had the chief priests. These were the ones who led in worship. The chief priest was going to be the ones leading the sacrifice system. They're going to be engaged in this. And then the scribes, these were the lawyers and the debaters of the day. The lawyers, the debaters, the religious leaders, and the the head politicians, all of them are engaged in rejecting Christ. And as he says here, he is going to be killed. He's going to be killed. Again, I think that message that he's going to die was so stunning to the ear of the disciple that Jesus had to repeat it multiple times. Turn over to Matthew chapter 17 and verse 22 and 23. You see it. It says, And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day, and they were deeply grieved. The first time he said it, they were shocked, and Peter said, Forbid it, Lord. The second time they heard it, there was a settled grief that took over. Turn over to chapter 20. Jesus is heading closer Chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. Jesus was about to go up into Jerusalem, and now they have traveled. They have traveled from the furthest point north, and now they're traveled down to Jerusalem. And it says, as he's about to go in, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, And again, now they're walking into Jerusalem and heading there together. He says to them, Behold, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. Jesus repeated it over and over again that he was going to die. He was going to lay down his life. There was going to be difficulty and he was going to be inflicted with this great difficulty. In fact, over in chapter 26, one more is starting to come out. Chapter 26, starting in verse 1, 
that Matthew records that when Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Point is in this timeline of events that from up to at least over a year or a year earlier, he's saying it is coming. And then as they're heading closer into Galilee where his main reference point where he committed his ministry and interacted with his disciples, he warned them it was going to happen. And then as he's walking into Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. And then two days before the sacrifice, he's saying, this is it. It's happening. It's coming. All the details are coming. And I am going to be killed. Turn back to Matthew 16. I'm going to be killed, suffer many things at the hands of these religious leaders, and then they're going to kill me. They're going to take my life. They're, they're going to sacrifice me. But those rich words at the end, but on the third day, he will be raised up. It's going to be sacrificed. Now, what I wanted to draw your attention to then is the demonstration of love of Christ towards his disciples and towards us that wasn't just a one-time event. It wasn't just a moment. It was a purposeful plan, a commitment demonstrated over time. It was an act of love that was known, and he continued and persevered through the difficulties. He knew exactly what his life meant and what he was coming to do. He knew exactly why he was there, his very purpose, when he was saying, I have come to do the will of the Father. He knew exactly what that will was, and he had revealed it in multiple places. I'm coming, I'm going to head to Jerusalem, I'm going to be taken captive by the religious leaders, they're going to mistreat me greatly. They're going to kill me, but on the third day I'll be raised up. Stunning on so many levels. But understandable that Peter himself wouldn't get it. Verse 22 and 23, forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. you know, God forbid it, basically, is what he's saying. Peter, thinking he's speaking on God's behalf, this is not God's plan. It cannot be right. It doesn't make sense to me. He's saying it's never going to happen. Notice Jesus' response to him in verse 23. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. You don't even know what you're talking about, Peter. You have been consumed with an earthly perspective, an earthly care, an earthly understanding. You need to understand God's work, God's purposes, what God is accomplishing. What is God demonstrating in the midst of this, Peter, which you don't understand? What God is demonstrating in the midst of this is what true love looks like. 
to show you this, turn over to Romans chapter 5. Let me make a connection for you. Peter thought in the moment to protect the life of Christ would be the greatest expression of love. Instead, what Peter is about to see, the greatest expression of love is what Christ is about to do to lay down his life for us. Romans 5 is Paul's explanation of the gospel. And in particular, as we've been looking at this section, is Paul drawing out some implications of the gospel. But it's particularly verses 6 through 8 that I want to draw our attention to. And Paul writes this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then this statement, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Peter didn't understand in that moment is that Christ had come to demonstrate love. He had set his heart and mind on the will of God to carry it out. And he demonstrated this love towards the undeserving, towards the unloving, towards the ones who were really enemies. I like, as Paul says it there, one would hardly die for a righteous man. As to say something like, well... I might lay my life down for a president, for a righteous man, I would take a bullet, for a family member or someone else, I would throw my life uh, in front of the danger so as to protect them. That might happen. But for an enemy, for an unrighteous one, and that was the state that Christ came and died came and died for the enemies. He came to die for the ungodly. He came to die for the unrighteous. And what I wanted to demonstrate to you that that coming and dying for the unrighteous wasn't some bad weekend that he had. It wasn't just a moment in which he decided, ah, what, you know, I'm not doing anything this weekend. I'll just die. It was a plan which happened from eternity past, a commitment that was regularly carried out. It was something that he warned and prepared the heart of his disciples for. It's something that he had prepared for and willingly yielded. Moment after moment, hour after hour, day by day. I mean, if someone had told you, in one year's time, you are going to die, how are you living for the next year? Maybe you'd had a good meal, but then after that good meal, you might be thinking, oh, that might be the last time I'm having a good meal with this group of friends or at this place. Or that you had a great time and you were out and you recognize most soberly in the moment, it's the last time I'm going to have that good time with this group of people. What kind of 
difficulty would be upon you, what kind of press would be upon you knowing that each moment, each hour means a few less minutes and you're getting closer to death's door. And then to come into that final week and be under all those pressures and all that opposition and people rejecting and having to speak with gentleness and patience and kindness. How to deal with a group of of disciples that were faint-hearted and weak, having to deal with a disciple who's turning on you and going to turn you over to your enemies, having to deal with all of those particular pressures at the exact same time, and then even to have to live under the dread of the Father's turning His face away, the Son. All of these pressures, and He continued to persevere to do the will of the Father. He didn't turn. He didn't cower under it. Though, frankly, we would give him every reason to, as the text indicates there, we were enemies. We were not in our best state. Peter, at the very moment Jesus is being tried, John tells us, Peter's there denying Christ. Very moment that Peter, uh, Jesus is at his most vulnerable. He is isolated from all of the other disciples. He is alone, being mistreated by the Roman soldiers and mocked. It is his own disciples who walked with him for years, denying him. And yet, through all of that, Christ continued to demonstrate this purposeful love. But God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ demonstrated a kind of love that wasn't superficial, it was supernatural. It was a kind of love that demonstrated God's love. A love that was purposeful, a love that continued through difficulty. A love that wasn't an emotion, a sympathy, but a love that had a great desire to personally sacrifice, to care for the need of another. Kind of love, again, that bore mistreatment, personal sacrifice, loneliness. And it is that kind of love that we come and remember on Easter. The kind of love that says, yeah, I've been mistreated, but I'm going to give love instead. I'm not going to return evil for evil. The kind of love that forgives, shows mercy, gives grace instead. The kind of love that bears the costs, bears the weight, bears the burdens. Kind of love that isn't seeking vengeance. The kind of love that shows that there is a greater appreciation for the things of God. That is what Easter reminds us of. And we know as dealing in a sinful world, we need to see the more of this kind of love. Because sometimes it's hard to love a spouse. Sometimes it's hard to love a wayward child. Sometimes it's hard to love a neighbor. 
But in those moments when we're rec- recognizing this is difficult and this is painful and they're not very lovely and it's, it's hard to do this, it's in those moments that we're reminded, yeah, that is the very love that Christ demonstrated towards us. When he knew it was coming, he was still faithful to do it. He wasn't waiting for something to kind of kick him into gear. He was willingly laying down his life. 